847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. This episode features another installment of my recurring listening to topic. And in this instance, I'd like to introduce you to one of my favorite composers of the modern era, Elliot Goldenthal. Uh, He is someone who's contributed brilliant and powerful music, not only to film and television, uh, but also live theater, uh, musicals, and the concert world, uh, the latter in the form of operas, ballets, and symphonies, and even some chamber music. Uh, Some listeners may already be familiar with Goldenthal's work, so this might just be a reminder and a refresher. But for others, I hope you find that this is an entertaining discovery. Elliot Goldenthal's name may not be as well known as other movie music composers, but you will most certainly recognize some of the movies that he scored. For example, there's the original Pet Cemetery in 1989, followed by Alien 3, A Time to Kill, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, uh, Interview with a Vampire, Titus, Michael Collins, uh, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and Frida, uh, to name some of the major highlights. Um, Interestingly, his roster of film credits may be few, though, uh, actually less than 40, in fact. But during the 1990s and early 2000s, his unique style and approach really quickly became as notable and sought after as Hans Zimmer's, Danny Elfman's, and Thomas Newman's. And along with those three composers, I think Ellie Goldenthal could be considered one of the most influential new composers to emerge in film over the last several decades. He showcases an eclectic style, um, which is really uh, uh, unique to him that uh, it ranges from epic orchestral uh, to jazz and rock and blues uh, to choral and ethnic instrumentation and from the very tonal to the very dissonant. Um, so, for example, I'd like to uh, play one of the, is the most pleasant and tonal melodies, um, which is a cue called Kitty's Waltz from 1996's Michael Collins. I want to give this as an example of um, how tonal and melodic his music uh, can be when needed. So, again, this is Kitty's Waltz from Michael Collins from 1996.
Now, while that's still fresh in your memory with that very lush uh, bed of strings um, underneath the solo trumpet line, uh, I wanted to play something from Maximum Contrast, a complete 180 from that, um, is uh, this thrashing, grungy guitar, drums, and vocal screams track uh, from Alien 3 from 1992. Um, This cue really occupies the opposite end of the spectrum completely from Kitty's Waltz. But again, I'm just sort of, you know, uh, edging you into the uh, diverse and immense range of, of what Goldenthal is capable of. So again, this is a cue from Alien 3. So as like I said, it was kind of a 180 from uh, that waltz tune. I remember uh, hearing this score for the first time in 1992 when I picked up the soundtrack on cassette, no less, um, and being um, completely taken aback by that track. But I really actually thought it was one of the coolest things I'd heard. Um, and uh, that score for Alien, for Alien 3 was the first time I had heard his name, that I had uh, heard his music. Um, but, uh, that score and, and among many others, uh, put him immediately for me on my, uh, my top favorites list. And I just wound up buying, uh, and, and seeking out everything that he composed, uh, throughout the nineties and the early two thousands. But, uh, I found, I discovered through this, that Ellie Goldenthal's music can really straddle all genres. Um, and it's, this is something that could be considered a hallmark of his style, um, in addition to um, a lot of modern compositional techniques and instrumentation that he really favors. Now, at a time uh, when the landscape of film music was changing um, back then, starting in the, in the early 90s, and the new crop of composers were uh, sort of migrating over from the pop and electronic worlds, um, Goldenthal surprisingly showcased a background more akin to the original Golden Age composers. Um by way of an intense conservatory schooling, followed by years spent writing music for the concert hall and live theater, as I noted. Um, now, to present his unique style and approach, I'm going to actually use one specific score as the lens through which we can view his efforts, all of his efforts in film, and also how his concert work informed this all. Um but more on that in a moment. Uh, but I would like to first formally introduce Elliot Goldenthal to you as far as his background. Um, Goldenthal was born in New York and Brooklyn, New York in 1954. Um, and he himself has noted in interviews that pretty much um, music dominated his life from the age of three and on. He trained on piano, 
played in bands and uh, was composing even in his teens um, for various ensembles, um, all before attending the Manhattan School of Music uh, for both bachelor's and master's degrees. Now, Elliot Goldenthal had two main formative influences in his life and his work, uh, one being avant-garde concert composer John Corigliano, who was his principal teacher, and then the other, unofficially, was famed composer Aaron Copland, uh, whose style of concert music wound up inspiring the overall sound of the Hollywood Western genre. And both Corigliano and Copeland themselves actually contributed music to film as well. Now, in a 2018 interview with uh, Nickel Hogan on his podcast, The Nickel Hogan Show, Goldenthal talked about what he learned from Corigliano as a teacher and a mentor. Um, and this included an awareness of architecture in music and how musical ideas can be revealed to the audience through development even in a very challenging piece, in a very avant-garde piece. Um, in addition, uh, both Corigliano and Goldenthal have an affinity for 20th century Polish composers, uh, such as Krzysztof Penderecki. Um, and these Polish composers uh, really championed atonality and dissonance in their music um, starting in the mid to late 20th century. So um, it, it was very, uh, like I said, very avant-garde uh, music. Now, from Aaron Copeland, uh, for whom he actually acted as a personal assistant over a summer um, in his youth, he uh, was advised to simplify things in his music, uh, just make things more direct. Now, from these two legendary mentors, um, you can actually detect more direct influences from Corigliano, from his avant-garde style, than you can from Aaron Copeland's very tonal music. Um, for instance, um, I wanted to play a portion of John Corigliano's Symphony No. 1. This is a work he did in the late 70s. Uh, it's a very dissonant and at times aggressive work with uh, jagged rhythms and, and sharp intonations from the brass. Um, and uh, I just wanted to give sort of you an idea of uh, the techniques that he was learning from Corigliano as far as composing for an orchestra in this very challenging uh, avant-garde style. So here's just a portion of John Corigliano's Symphony Number no. 1.
certainly that's a piece of music that can make your hair stand on end uh, with anxiety. <laughs> but uh, Corigliano, as I mentioned, also did uh, or has scored uh, several films during his career, um, such as Altered States, uh, starring William Hurt, and that was in 1980. Uh, Revolution with Al Pacino, and then uh, The Red Violin uh, was from 1998, which he actually won um, the Oscar for, uh, for Best Score. But um, I wanted to play now a portion of one of Ellie Goldenthal's film scores to show the influences of those same modern, discordant 20th century concert techniques uh, that I mentioned that both uh, Corigliano and Goldenthal uh, really had an affinity for. Um, and uh, these techniques found their way into several of Goldenthal's concert works, but this is a portion uh, of a cue called Toccata and Dreamscape from 2001's Final Fantasy. So again, flipping over to Goldenthal's music uh, to show those influences from Corigliano and those, uh, those 20th century, those modern 20th century orchestral technique. So this is a little bit of Toccata and Dreamscape from Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within from 2001. So hopefully you can hear uh, the lineage, uh, that sort of musical lineage from Corigliano to Ellie Goldenthal, hearing the techniques that are being carried forward in some of his music, hearing the development of certain small ideas that that sort of get communicated and and sort of picked up uh, throughout that piece. Uh, It's definitely not something that's, you know, full of an eight-bar tune or, you know, traditionally melodic, uh, but it's still engaging and, and uh, sort of arresting um, but uh, I, I definitely am, am a big fan of uh, of that style of music uh, uh, from Corigliano and Ellie Goldenthal. Now in addition to his uh, schooling Ellie Goldenthal played piano in a touring blues band um, and wound up uh, soaking up a diverse amount of musical genres uh, during his travels across the country um, from jazz to ragtime and rock 
And so this also informed his music going forward. And these are genres that you'll actually hear him revisit in many of his film scores um, in Surprising Twists um, and also in some, some of his concert works and his musicals um, and often featuring solos for saxophone. It's an instrument he really seems to favor. Um, now, throughout the 1970s, um, following uh, his uh, schooling, he, he wound up composing uh, a lot of chamber music, concertos, ballets, um, as well as for um, stage production pl- of plays, including several Shakespeare plays. Um, and then he later won an Obie Award for his oratorio called Wanderian, a Carnival Mass, uh, which was also nominated for two Tonys uh, for music and lyrics. Now, Juan Darien originally premiered in New York in 1988 and then toured internationally. Um, it uh, later had its Broadway debut in 1996 um, and was directed by Julie Taymor, who is Golden Doll's partner in life. And also, uh, she directed The Lion King on Broadway, so that was one of the most notable things that uh, she's famous for. But Juan Darien is a very strange hypnotic musical uh, featuring some wild instrumentation, including... Uh, didgeridoo, accordion, tubas, marimbas, violin, and vocals, uh, both solo and in groups. And the oddness of this you can get in a sample of this piece called Lullaby, um, which features some of those instruments, as well as a vocal which, to me, resembles Tom Waits um, in terms of its guttural low uh, quality of the of the vocalist. Um, so this is uh, Lullaby from Juan Darien, a carnival mass. Sí. 
So that was Lullaby from Juan Derry and a Carnival Mass. It was an oratorio that Goldenthal uh, composed around 1988. Um, now, Goldenthal's actual first film project occurred around a decade before that in 1978 uh, with a film called Blank Generation uh, that incidentally included Andy Warhol in its cast. Uh, funny enough, it wasn't this early film work that brought him the notice in Hollywood. It was actually the Wandarian Oratorio that got him noticed, enough to be hired to score Pet Cemetery in 1989. So this was the first film adaption of the Stephen King novel uh, directed by Mary Lambert. Now, personally, I've always wondered what part of Wandarian appealed most to Lambert and the producers to seek out Goldenthal's talent. Um, but in, you know, in listening to it and I, cause I wasn't familiar with it at that time. Uh, like I said, alien three was the first time that I sort of was exposed to his music. Um, but, uh, with Juan Darian, since there are a number of unsettling percussive sections and there's also the quirkiness, um, I think that sort of, uh, is what, uh, brought to the attention of Mary Lambert. And then there are also a number of solo vocal and mixed choral pieces from Juan Darian, um, that are notable and one in particular called Trance, featuring a boy soprano soloist accompanied by violin that to me seems like to be a possible inspiration for his Pet Cemetery score. Um, so uh, for that comparison, first listen to this song from Wandarian uh, called Trance. So that was Trance from Wandary in a Carnival Mass. Now, if you keep the sound and feeling of that piece in your head for a moment and then listen to his main title cue from uh, 1989's Pet Cemetery, see if you can hear the progression of ideas from Wandarian uh, to Pet Cemetery with the boy soprano soloist expanded to a children's choir, but still with a hypnotic uh, slower pace and those really high string sonorities. So, this is the main title cue from Pet Cemetery from 1989.
So that was a portion of the main title cue from Goldenthal's score for 1989's Pet Cemetery. I had wanted to uh, just compare it to Wandarian, um, since I had read that that oratorio, the Wandarian oratorio, uh, is what brought him to the attention of producers in Hollywood, which I just find is an interesting anecdote since... Um, you know, by the uh, the mid to late 80s, you know, so many composers, like I had mentioned, were coming from the pop and electronic world, and that's what was getting them in the door. Or they were already sort of established, and there were other film credits that got people noticed. Uh, so I just find that fascinating. But it's also interesting, at this point, we've heard a number of examples of Goldenthal's work, um, from the waltz to the thrashing guitar to the avant-garde orchestral to the um, strange musicals um, and oratorios. So hopefully you can sort of get an idea of Goldenthal's immense range um, even before he entered the film world. Um, but it was his praiseworthy effort on Pet Cemetery that really launched Goldenthal's film career, uh, putting him on the short list of major releases over the next decade or so, uh, many of which I listed at the top of the episode. And all during this time, he actually continued to compose for the stage um, in terms of symphonies, operas, and musicals. But I had mentioned that I wanted to focus on a specific score as the key to his film work. Uh, And that specific score is Titus from 1999, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jessica Lange, and directed by Julie Taymor, uh, who uh, was a Tony Award winner um, at that point uh, for the uh, Broadway production of The Lion King in 1997. Titus is based on the play Titus Andronicus, written by William Shakespeare, and believed to be his first tragedy, as it concerns itself with a deepening cycle of vicious revenge among its characters, resulting in some particularly bloody and disturbing events. Prior to this film version, Goldenthal had actually written music for a stage production that was mounted in 1995, also directed by Tamor, um, and of which he said he didn't really make many references back to what he had composed at that point. So, in my opinion, Titus can be considered the apotheosis of Goldenthal's work in film um, as it displays examples of almost every musical style that he's explored. Um, It's that eclectic style that I talked about early, uh, early in the episode, ranging from fully orchestral to choral pieces, rock, swing jazz, rockabilly, ambient electronica, and even some cues for a chamber ensemble. Um... Now, the reason for such broad diversity in the score is closely tied in with the visual elements of the movie. Um, Julie Taymor dressed the sets and the characters across multiple time periods, from Roman centurion armor to uh, 40s eras men's suits to punk rock garb, um, each sort of loosely assigned to different age groups uh, in the film. Um, along with props and vehicles uh, from various time periods, tanks or um, cars from the mid-50s. So Goldenthal responded with a score that also dips its strident notes into multiple eras. Um, It's an aspect that he stated in interviews was uh, partially inspired by spending time in the open public spaces in Rome and being orally assaulted all at once by opera, rap, jazz, and other genres sort of blasting from passing cars and radios. So in effect, the movie and his music encompass thousands of years of human history, um, visually and sonically, in telling this story where violence ends up being the value most often expressed by uh, its characters. Yeah. 
So it all opens with a cue called Victorious Titus, an ancient sounding imposing piece for choir, clanging percussion and orchestra, with lyrics in Latin that actually are a translation of the opening phrases of the play. Uh, in some ways, I think this harkens back to some of uh, Goldenthal's Wanderian oratorio um, and some of his uh, offbeat stage musicals. Um, but uh, here is part of that cue, uh, that open cue from Titus called Victorious Titus. Something I find interesting um, is that the action on screen in this opening sequence has uh, Titus Andronicus's army marching in unison, uh, timed to the music, uh, into a Roman-styled Colosseum. So it's a pretty neat uh, effect combining um, the visuals and the music. Now, um, perhaps surprisingly, this opening cue doesn't really represent any sort of main theme for the movie, like you might expect in in other, you know, uh, big spectacles. Uh, or even does this become some sort of leitmotif that reoccurs? It's not really sort of attached to anyone, um, you know, any one character. And much of the score for Titus really consists of standalone set pieces. Um, Ellie Goldenthal's not really writing from within a character's head, um, you know, from, from within their headspace or a particular viewpoint. Um, there aren't really character themes, any sort of leitmotifs for particular characters, so it's more objective. It's more objectively commenting per scene. However, there are a few melodic elements that are developed, um, one of which represents the notion of pity or compassion in the story. Um, this is something which Goldenthal talked about in an interview in the book called Knowing the Score by David Morgan. Um, so about this, um, Ellie Goldenthal had this to say, quote, in one case, there seem to be times where different characters find themselves in a similar position. The goth queen, Titus, and Aaron, the three major characters, beg for their children's lives to be saved. So you say, what if I write a theme, say a compassion theme or a pity theme, and repeat that? Would it work? So I wrote this one theme away from the film at the piano. I thought of it as a two-part partita. Uh, there are two people involved, one that's begging one that can give reprieve. So it's in two-part counterpoint, end quote. So here's the first instance of that uh, beautiful and tragic pity theme. Uh, this is from a cue titled Obsequious, um, which is, and the theme is voiced by boy soprano accompanied by viola da gamba, which is a Baroque era instrument. 
Um, so again, with this uh, with this boy soprano sort of accompanied by stringed instrument, there's a bit uh, there's some shades of uh, Wandarian and Pet Cemetery. Um, also, uh, the, these elements appear in um, a few other earlier uh, uh, film projects of Golden Dolls, which I'll discuss in a moment. But um, so here's that instance uh, of that pity theme uh, from Titus from a cue called Obsequious. So again, that was a portion of the cue called Obsequious from Titus. Now, that theme is heard in later cues. Um, as Goldenthal talked about it, he used it in different situations where um, one character, uh, the, the characters with children, uh, are begging another character for a reprieve. Um, and so on the album in tracks uh, called uh, The Offering and Pressing Judgment, uh, you can hear this theme again uh, for those different sequences. Now, in the latter instance that I mentioned, uh, the, the latter cue, Pressing Judgment, um, you'll hear the theme, but minus the boy soprano, so it's just the viola da gamba. So this type of melancholy scoring for solo voice and strings, um, or a particular boy soprano and, and strings, is something you can hear in Goldenthal's, uh, several early Goldenthal scores from the 90s, from the early 90s. 
And uh, this sort of just goes to my point about considering Titus as sort of the lens through which we can um, examine his uh, his body of work in film and film scoring. Um, and so some of those early 90s scores uh, would include Alien 3 from 1992 and Interview with a Vampire from 1994 that also utilize this same approach and style of the um, the solo voice with the strings. Um, and uh, they, they both feature great cues for that type of approach. Um, and in all cases, it sort of evokes this sense of an ancient plea for a release from sadness or suffering. For comparison to Titus, I'll, I'll play you an example of what I mean. Uh, this would be from Interview with a Vampire. Uh, it's the opening cue called Liberame, which translates from Latin as Rescue Me. Uh, so again, sort of think back to what we were just listening to from Titus uh, with that sort of uh, melancholy scoring for the, the solo voice and strings, and then uh, compare that with uh, Interview with a Vampire uh, with this cue called Liberame. So that was part of the cue Libera May uh, from Golden Ball's score uh, from 1994's Interview with the Vampire. Um, different melody, uh, you know, different lyrics, but um, hopefully you can sort of um, make the connection between, you know, the instrumental voices with the solo voice and, and how um, he expanded on that in Titus um, and sort of how that's been sort of a recurrent uh, approach instrumentally uh, for his music, uh, both on stage and in film. So speaking about Goldenthal's approach of objectively commenting on the events in Titus um, and the cycle of revenge that all the characters perpetuate, this is an aspect that uh, gets characterized musically in a particular cue called Revenge Wheel. Uh, it's a cue with this aggressive circular, uh, circling uh, figure in the bases, almost like a motor, uh, beneath which these powerful chords by brass and strings head in opposite uh, directions. Uh, so it's a, it's a short cue, but I really like how it just sort of briefly sums up um, this uh, aggressive cycle of revenge of the character. So this is Revenge Wheel from Titus. <laughs>
that was Revenge Wheel from Goldenthal's score for Titus. Um, that type of motion that I mentioned, sort of the the, uh, the aggressive sort of circular figure, um, this type of motion is actually kind of common in Goldenthal's music, especially with these sort of rapid arpeggios um, uh, in, in a lot of his action sequences. So you'll find that in some of his action and sci-fi films. Um, his music is rarely static. Uh, even when there's a melody and it's just being accompanied, um, the harmonies always seem to be in motion, and there always seems to be something active going on in counterpoint to the the melody. But um, anyway, I like that that brief motif sort of musically comments on the endless and ultimately fruitless cycle of abuse and uh, retribution displayed in uh, the story of Titus Andronicus. Now, to switch styles away from the orchestral and Baroque instruments uh, for a bit, um, it's it's time to spotlight the modern musical elements that Goldenthal brought into his score for Titus, um, starting with the jazz aspect. And I want to uh, refer back to that same interview from the book Knowing the Score um, by uh, by David Morgan um, and during this interview where he uh, talks about, he describes his colorfully diverse approach to the music of Titus. Um, so he says, and I quote, there were generational differences, and I felt that for the older generation, Titus, Tamora, Aaron, the music tended to be a little more orchestral. For Saturninus and Bassianus, the younger electoral candidates, I thought they were more in a jazz age, uh, certainly because they used jazzy automobiles and Mussolini's governmental palace. And you had these dance sequences for which music had to be pre-composed, end quote. So to illustrate this, um, here is a part of the cue uh, called Tribute and Suffrage, which accompanies, the latter part of this accompanies those aforementioned characters, Saturninus and Bassianus, on their way to a political rally. So this is the cue Suffrage from Titus.
As I described earlier in the episode, Goldenthal's time in his youth touring with the blues band helped him absorb uh, various indigenous forms of American music, and thus blues, along with jazz and swing, gospel and more, uh, find their way into a number of his film scores and also his stage musicals. Uh, there's jazz and swing elements heard in his music f- uh, for both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin uh, from 1995 and 1997, respectively. Uh, plus the dramas Golden Gate from 1994 and Frida from 2002, the latter for which he won an Oscar for Best Original Score. Saxophone is most often used to voice this musical idiom in his scores. It's evident that Goldenthal really loves its tonality, um, you know, more so than using, say, a jazz piano or a vibraphone. Um, and what's even more fascinating is you'll find that uh, he'll use the saxophone often completely out of context uh, in a, like non-bluesy, non-jazzy uh, type of context, such as uh, in his scores for In Dreams and The Butcher Boy. Uh, now, just for an example of uh, another score that has this jazzy aspect to it, Golden Gate from 1994 is a favorite of mine. Um, and uh, so you can hear how he incorporates um, jazz and finger snaps and a lot of really uh, neat aspects in this particular cue uh, called Bopathonics Hex. part of a cue called uh, Bopathonic's Hex from Goldenthal's score for the 1994 movie Golden Gate. Uh, just so, showing it as an example of, uh, again, now the, the jazz or swing element um, that has influenced Goldenthal's film work, and again, how we can find it in Titus, but also in uh, other film works of his from the 90s. Now, one specific example in this particular uh, jazz idiom that I'd like to play as well is from Goldenthal's musical The Green Bird, uh, produced in 1996 and uh, premiering on Broadway in 1999. Uh, This is also directed by Julie Taymor. The score and vocal numbers carry a lot of swing and jazz elements, uh, along with uh, some of his trademark quirky instrumentation. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is that uh, there's a particular memorable song from this musical, The Green Bird, which has an unexpected link to Titus. Um, it's a song called Oh Foolish Heart and sung by the entire cast as a big finish for the show. 
Um, and it has a, what was what I found striking about is I didn't discover this musical of Goldenthal's until years later after Titus. Um, but it was composed three years before it. And, but it has this unexpected link to it, which when I heard the musical, I'm like, oh my gosh, um, how funny is that? Um, so I want to, you know, first play you the song from the green bird that I'm talking about. So, um, this is the song, Oh Foolish Heart, uh, from Ellie Goldenthal's musical, The Green Bird. If you hold on to that melody from that song, Oh Foolish Heart, from the Broadway musical The Green Bird, um, in your head for a moment, and then listen to this cue from Titus called Adagio, you might notice some similarities. And this is a connection that I only made years later as I hadn't owned, like I mentioned, the uh, the, the Green Bird um, album on CD until around 10 years ago. So this was a discovery I didn't make until, rec- until you know, somewhat recently. Um, but this is the cue Adagio from Goldenthal's score for Titus.
pretty neat, right? <laughs> uh, so that cue Adagio, which in Titus uh, plays during a big party sequence, it's essentially an instrumental version of Oh Foolish Heart from The Green Bird. Um, so again, like I said, when I heard that, and I, you know, I've been familiar with the, the score from Titus, I've owned it since it came out in 99, and, and so I know that the score backwards and forwards, and, and that cube is a favorite of mine, and so imagine my surprise when I discovered the Green Bird musical, uh, which was written three years before Titus, I was like, oh, how about that? That's, it's actually from the Green Bird, and it's an instrumental, instrumental version of that song, Oh Foolish Heart. Anyway, there are several other cues of this ilk in Titus, uh, which again, this musically paints the middle generation characters in this story. Uh, while Goldenthal then introduces more um, modern sounds to underscore the younger adults, uh, sort of the quote-unquote punk kids uh, who honestly exhibit some of the cruelest behavior in the story, um, but they are musically colored through this thrashing rock genre um, and some ambient electronic textures, um, and then also a, a rockabilly vibe in one particular instance. So these uh, various cues are gathered together in a track on the album called Pickled Heads, um, which seems like doesn't have any sort of meaning, but it does have context within the story. <laughs> um, but I wanted to play a little bit of that uh, track now. So again, this is sort of the uh, thrashing rock sound that uh, musically colors the the, uh, the youngest generation of characters in Titus. Um, but you can also kind of hear the lineage of some of the, the thrashing rock cues that we played, uh, that I played earlier, um, such as in Alien 3. So again, this is a bit of uh, a cue called Pickled Heads from Titus. So again, that was part of a track called Pickled Heads from uh, the soundtrack album for Titus. Um, and the, that thrashing style of rock, like I said, is meant to musically sort of characterize the, uh, the punk kids in the, uh, in the story. Um, but it's similar to uh, that style, uh, similar to what we heard at the start of the episode when I played a bit of a cue from Alien 3. So you can gather that it was a musical style that Goldenthal had broached before. Um, and um, he did so in even more extensive fashion in two other projects. Uh, his music for 1995's Heat, directed by Michael Mann and starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, as well as 2003's SWAT, a movie based on the 1970s TV show. So for comparison, um, here's part of a cue from that latter movie from SWAT called Bullet Frenzy. And I just want to illustrate again how he is um, able to incorporate this rock element 
into the orchestral sonority of the score. So again, this is part of a cue called Bullet Frenzy from SWAT from 2003. So again, that was a bit of a cue called Bullet Frenzy from the score for 2003's SWAT. Uh, I find it fascinating how Ellie Goldenthal uh, can achieve this collision of style, this sort of collision of sounds, and still make it all musical and distinctive uh, to his own style. Um, even if we extend this topic to ethnic instrumentation in his scores. Some notable examples of, of uh, this uh, ethnic instrumentation would be the Irish uh, elements incorporated into the music for uh, Michael Collins from 1996, the uh, North African rhythms uh, from The Good Thief, and uh, then the Mexican influences in his Oscar-winning score for Frida from 2002, uh, for which Goldenthal put together a band of mostly different guitars, uh, from acoustic to steel string. Uh, there's a bass guitar called a guitaron, uh, plus harp, glass harmonica, accordion, and strings. Now, in addition to this, he also, uh, for Frida, wrote for several vocalists, uh, Catano Veloso, Leela Downs, and Chavela Vargas, uh, with several songs that are actually featured in the movie. So here's one of those songs uh, from Frida. This is Alcoba Azul, which translates from Spanish as the uh, Blue Bedroom. And it's uh, pretty much a tango um, for a particular scene in the movie. And the vocalist here is Leela Downs. So again, this is Alcoba Azul from Frida. La noche irá sin prisa de nostalgia Habrá de ser un tango nuestra herida Un acordeón sangriento nuestras almas Seremos esta noche todo el día Vuelve 
llámame sin luz en nuestra alcoba azul donde no hubo sol para nosotros Llécame hasta mi corazón en nuestra alcoba So that was Alcoba Azul uh, from Goldenthal's score from Frida from 2002. Uh, the vocalist there was Leela Downs. Frida was directed by Julie Tamor, uh, just as Titus was, and uh, starred Selma Hayek as the famous painter. And it was the project that garnered Goldenthal an Academy Award in 2003. So I find that Ellie Goldenthal never really writes down to the format. Um, he never sort of uh, quote-unquote dulls his compositions for a film project whether it's uh, based on a Shakespeare play or whether it's a cop drama uh, whether it's fully orchestral or seasoned with grunge rock or ethnic instrumentation in fact for a variety of reasons I actually feel that Goldenthal kind of has a kindred spirit found in the legendary composer Bernard Herrmann um, who was, of course, famous for his collaborations with director uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Brian De Palma, uh, the special effects master Ray Harryhausen, and more. And Herman was a focus of an earlier episode of my podcast. Um, but Bernard Herman was really known as an iconoclast um, in his sound and his approach to composing. And he took his film scores as seriously as his concert music and never really wrote down to film or TV. Uh, in addition, every project that Herman composed for was really filtered through his own personal worldview, his own personal lens. So Herman's own um, uh, melancholy, uh, or his own sort of unspecified anger or feelings of paranoia or moodiness all translated to pretty much most every score he wrote. And I think in a similar fashion with Eldon Goldenthal, his own unique, eclectic, challenging style is found um, throughout his concert music and also all of his film work. Uh, there really isn't a dividing line uh, between those uh, you know between those arenas. So the other aspect to Goldenthal's score to Titus, just to jump back to uh, my main score focus here, um, and his work in general uh, are his approach uh, to large-scale orchestral cues. Um, something which you can hear in his science fiction and fantasy genre projects such as Sphere, uh, Demolition Man, Batman and Forever, and Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. He can really put the orchestra through their paces uh, with very active lines for all sections from woodwinds, strings, percussion, brass, everybody, sometimes in competition with each other. Um, but there remains a real clarity uh, to his orchestration. And what I mean by that is that you can always hear what each section is playing. Um, the effect of a full orchestra playing doesn't just become a wash of sound um, in his music. The instrumental groupings in Goldenthal's uh, orchestral score still stand out. Uh, one example of this from Titus that I'd like to present is a cue called Arrows of the Gods. So after a declamatory opening of these rising chords you'll hear, 
the strings break out this repeating ostinato that kind of arches up and down sharply. It's almost sort of traces the shape, uh, the tip of an arrow. Um, trumpets join in uh, pretty soon, and then this repeating figure gets bounced around a lot uh, between those, those sections between strings and brass. So I wanted to, you know, present this cue. So this is a cue called Arrows of the Gods from Ellie Goldenthal's score for Titus. What's amazing about this and other big action cues from Ellie Goldenthal is that they're almost like modern dance pieces. Um, And by that, I mean stage, not sort of a modern club dance piece. Um, I could easily hear these cues being transported to a stage, a live stage environment for a ballet troupe um, without much modification. I think what lends a bit of credence to this observation um, can be heard in various dance pieces from a ballet composed by Ellie Goldenthal. Um, from 1997. This would be his ballet, Othello, uh, based on the Shakespeare tragedy of the same name and choreographed by Lar Lubovitch. And this premiered at the Met in New York in 1997. What you can discover in this ballet from Goldenthal is the same energy, motion, and a bit of dissonance uh, that you find in his film work. Um, Or I should say that instead that his film music carries on these qualities found in his stage work. So here is part of the dance Tarantella from his ballet Othello, uh, as performed by the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra, conducted by Emile Deku.
So that was a portion of the dance Tarantella from Goldenthal's 1997 ballet Othello, as performed by the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra, conducted by Emile Decoux. Available on album from Verez Saraband, if you're interested in checking that out and adding it to your collection. In listening to that piece uh, for the stage, uh, after hearing that cue, Arrows of the Gods from Titus, um, hopefully you can get a sense that Goldenthal's personal approach to writing music doesn't really change with the format, whether stage or screen. His voice permeates throughout. Now, this does mean that, much like Bernard Herrmann, he's not an invisible presence in the movies that he scores, which could be jarring if the film itself isn't strong enough to partner with his music. As a side note, uh, there are also some examples, as recently as 2014, in which his film work has actually informed his concert work. Uh, For example, Goldenthal's Symphony in G-sharp minor features development of motifs that are first heard in his score uh, for 1998's Sphere and also 2001's Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, which I found pretty fascinating, especially as I love both of those scores. I highly recommend any fans of the composer to seek out uh, the CD recording of this Symphony in G-sharp minor. It's really stellar. But to return to Titus, I wanted to close out by... Uh, presenting the other aspect that is a highlight of this score and uh, much of his other music, and that is a quality of breathtaking beauty. I know it might seem surprising to learn that there is room in such a bleak story as Titus for any beauty, but the movie actually allows Goldenthal to end with a lengthy um, eight-and-a-half-minute cue, uh, appropriately labeled Finale, that is not only one of his best achievements um, in film scoring, but has long been a favorite of mine, uh, both from him and pretty much one of my favorite film cues ever. It musically provides a sense of release from the cycle of violence that was being perpetuated among the characters, as well as a sense of redemption uh, for humanity at large. Um, Basically through this short rising figure that continues to move from the lower basses to the upper strings and upper brass and sort of just continues to keep uh, trying to rise above it all. Uh, Much of the cue plays under a really long unbroken shot as we watch a a newborn being carried away from the violence. Um, Basically they return to the uh, Colosseum uh, uh, sort of setting that they started the movie in. Um, and so this, uh, the new more sort of being carried into the sunrise. It's a really beautiful marriage of image and sound. Um, and again, one of my very favorites, but, um, here's a portion of that cue finale from Titus. And it's a, I'm going to play a little bit longer of a selection than I normally do because it is a really long cue, but I'll play a few minutes of that. So this is part of the finale from Titus.
That was a portion of the finale cue from Goldenthal's score for Titus. The cue then continues on with a subdued coda that uh, re basically recapitulates this material, but it's, it's equally as moving. So this quality of transcendence and beauty you can actually find in a number of Goldenthal's other film compositions, remarkably in some you may not expect, uh, such as Alien 3, uh, Demolition Man, and Final Fantasy, uh, but also some dramas such as Golden Gate, Michael Collins, and Frida. So there is a comment regarding Elliot Goldenthal um, from author and journalist uh, Royal S. Brown that I'd like to share. Um, this is back when um, Royal S. Brown was writing for Fanfare Magazine, um, and he was basically writing a soundtrack column, and um, a lot of those um, uh, columns that he wrote are available in a book called Film Musings. So this is from the January-February 1997 issue and actually concerns Goldenthal's score for A Time to Kill, uh, which had been released the year prior to that. So in uh, Brown's assessment of the movie and the score, he closed with this observation. Quote, Elliot Goldenthal is probably one of the most gifted musicians working in the film music business today, and I'm not sure that anybody has yet figured out how to take full advantage of those gifts. End quote. Now, this might still be the case, although, to the contrary, I would offer up his music uh, for Julie Taymor's film Titus that we've been listening to as an instance where his gifts were indeed utilized to their fullest extent to maximum effect. And I find that whether subtle or striking, violent or gentle, melodic or dissonant, stage or screen, there is an excellence felt and heard throughout Ellie Goldenthal's music. This wraps up my overview of the brilliant and incredible music of Ellie Goldenthal, with a specific focus on his score for 1999's Titus. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into his music, listening for what makes it unique and memorable. Quotes were from the books Knowing the Score by David Morgan and Film Musings by Royal S. Brown. Also, check out the website, uh, elliegoldenthal.com. It's a marvelous resource for his music from all arenas, uh, film, stage, and concert. Other than the excerpts from the works by composers John Corigliano and Aaron Copeland, music in this episode was composed by Elliot Goldenthal, and from the following films or stage works, Michael Collins, Alien 3, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, Juan Darien, A Carnival Mass, Pet Cemetery, 1989, Titus, Interview with a Vampire, Golden Gate, The Green Bird, SWAT, Frida, and Othello. If you would like to send any comments or questions to the show, you can email me at a score to settle podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at a score to settle.blogspot.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash a score to settle and on Twitter at score to settle pod that score the number two settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review. That's always appreciated. And of course, the podcast is also available on Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.